Jeremiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, They say, If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted, but you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see. Where have you not lain with men? By the road you've sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you've polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Will you not from this time cry to me, My father, you are the guide of my youth. Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things as you were able. We've been analyzing Jeremiah's sermon. Remember what I said earlier. It began in chapter 2, verse 1. It continued throughout the chapter. And now it ends in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. In the closing section of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 29 through 37, Jeremiah has given us a laundry list of the reasons for God's discipline. Remember, the nation stands right on the precipice of discipline. In 720 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken away by Assyria. In a few short decades... Babylon is going to sweep into Judea and take the people captive and destroy the temple. And they're going to be marched off into captivity. So Jeremiah is going to list reasons for God's discipline, for God's chastisement, for God's punishment. And that, and that how in the past Judah had rejected God's discipline. The people complained and rebelled. The people persecuted God's spokespeople, the prophets. They desired to be free from the Lord. They desired to be free from his commands. They desired to be free from the demands. In other words, they were coming to a place in their life where they said, choose another people. We're tired of being the chosen people. Let's go with choice number two. And so they wanted to be free. Just like some Christians. Some Christians fantasize. Well, I was better off when I was an unbeliever because then I got to have fun. I got to party. I got to watch whatever I wanted to watch. I got to do with whatever I wanted to do. Christianity is no fun. Really? You don't remember the emptiness and the darkness? You don't remember the constant fear? You don't remember throwing up in the toilet bowl? You don't remember going to bed at night wondering if you would die in your sin and go straight to hell? What's fun about that? And now you have assurance, peace, a right relationship with God. But these people wanted to be free to roam the orchards and vineyards of false philosophies and man-made religions. They forgot the Lord for days on end. Remember, they imagined a woman like he, Jeremiah uses the analogy. Imagine a woman who forgets her jewels on her wedding day. And I think I told you that I'm not a big fan of the British wedding, but my wife forced me to watch like two hours of it. And everybody was wondering what kind of dress she would be wearing and what kind of jewelry she would have and the tiara that would be around her head. Can you imagine this woman preparing for her wedding day when a billion people are going to watch her and she forgets her jewels? That's what Jeremiah likened the people of Judah. You have been called to be a constant companion of the living God. And in the New Testament, you've been called to be a constant companion of Jesus Christ. You're called the church and a bride. 
You are chosen, adopted and accepted. You have been brought into the family and your place is with the Lord. But these people had lost their compass, their moral compass. They were in a sea of iniquity. They complained. They exploited the poor and the weak. They justified their sinful behavior. They complained that they were innocent in spite of all the evidence. The people believed their sins weren't severe enough to warrant rejection. They turned anywhere and everywhere except to the one place where they could get hope and deliverance, the person of the Lord. And since the people put their trust in idols, and since the people put their trust in political powers, and since the people put their trust in other human beings, the Lord warned them. That their frustration would only increase. And in the end, their unbelief and their make-belief would be no help. And now Jeremiah's sermon takes a different direction. In chapter 3, as we come to the end of this sermon, and it picks up a second message in verse 6, the theme is going to include divorce and disobedience and destruction. As a matter of fact, chapter 3 contains an illustration, and then an invitation, and then a prediction. Jeremiah will use the analogy of God's relationship to Israel like an innocent husband who has tenderly cared for his much younger wife. And she's going to divorce she, well, actually, he's going to wind up divorcing the wife. And the wife has been deeply involved in adultery. But the husband, because of his great love, will seek to mend the fence and restore the fractured relationship that has been there because of sin. The people need to repent. And so Jeremiah's appeal will take the form of several reasons why they should repent. Number one. The Lord loves the people, and in spite of their wickedness and unfaithfulness, he's willing to take them back. Number two, the people were guilty of defiling and polluting God's inheritance, which in this case is the land. Prostitution was everywhere. Adultery, fornication, both literal and spiritual, that is, in the form of idolatry. The land and its people were like defiled spiritual dumpsters. The people were throwing their garbage out and their trash and the sinful behavior like heaps and piles of trash made every single square inch of the land defiled. The people refused to learn from God's spiritual discipline and correction and that spiritual discipline and correction would take two forms, one on the outside and one on the inside, one having to do with (laughs) the weather, the other one having to do with shame. And number four, the people's lives were marked by hypocrisy. Why? They called God my father. And my God, they assumed that God's discipline would be brief or superficial, but because they were Jews, because they were part of the covenant people, because they were direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Benjamin and Judah, there was no way that God would allow the temple to be destroyed and then taken into captivity. And so they praised God with their lips. But their hearts were far from him. And so in verse one, it says, they say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you've played the harlot with many lovers yet return to me, says the Lord. Who are they in the very opening word? They say, I'm going to suggest to you that these are the religious leaders and particularly the priests. Remember, Jeremiah is a priest. I know every time I say Jeremiah, I want to say he was a bullfrog, but he wasn't. He was a priest. Remember, we're back in the Bible, not in the 60s. 
Jeremiah was a priest. He was the son of a priest and the grandson of a priest. And the law of Moses forbade a man from divorcing his wife, marrying another, and then returning to the person who had been divorced. He's actually making an allusion, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And if you have a Bible, you might want to go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible to Genesis and then turn to Exodus Leviticus, and then pause at Deuteronomy, and then flip to chapter 24. And when you get to chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin On the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, remember in the New Testament. The religious leaders come to Jesus and basically say, can we divorce for any reason or no reason at all? And remember Jesus' response. Jesus' response was. That's not the way it was in the beginning. In the beginning, God created a man and a woman. And the Bible says a man would leave his mother and father and cleave together. And the two shall become one. We know, Rabbi, which one? Me or her? No, that's not what the text means. It doesn't mean will you become him or her. The the text means that it's indissolvable. It's insoluble. It's, It's supposed to be unity. It's a unity based on trust, respect, and affection. But then why did Moses permit divorce? And remember Jesus' response, it's because of the hardness of your heart. It's because of the hardness of your heart. And you have to understand, in the culture of Judaism, in the, in, at that particular time, when a woman had little or no rights whatsoever, if a man said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and she was left out on the street to wander the streets, and the very fact that Moses would allow a bill of divorcement was a legal way of saying that the marriage was terminated and this person was free, if you will, to enter into a new relationship. And a new circumstance. But a man who divorced his wife, who then remarried, according to the law of Moses, wasn't allowed to return to her. The law of Moses condemned marriage partners who drifted from one failed relationship to the next failed relationship to the next failed relationship and then returned to the original partner. The Lord saw this as immoral and unacceptable. But what of God's people? If that were true concerning real human beings in real life, then how do you explain God's willingness to take Judah back after being so unfaithful so many times, so wickedly detached from the true and the living God? You know what Jeremiah's point is? That the Lord's love is great. His mercy is wide. The Lord, here's here's part of the way that I, I need you to think about the passage. The Lord has every right to put his unfaithful spouse away. But his love is great. His mercy is wide. His tenderness is from everlasting to everlasting. And so in the midst of such profound wickedness and evil, such profound betrayal, he's saying, I'll take you back. I'll take you back. Part of the point of the passage is to remind the reader of the great difficulty of restoring a relationship that has been marred by betrayal and unfaithfulness. And if you've ever been in a relationship that was marred by betrayal, 
and unfaithfulness. If you've ever been with a person and the trust was gone and the respect was gone and the affection was gone, then you know the tremendous difficulty it is to reconcile a relationship like this. Israel had made reconciliation impossible and Judah's actions seemed to indicate that she was headed in the same direction as the northern kingdom. But what do we learn as Christians? As Christians, we understand that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession of sin from a truly repentant heart can bring a flood of forgiveness. But it only takes one person to forgive. It takes two people to be reconciled. And so the plea goes out. You've played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. Do you know what this means for each and every Christian who's ever failed God? For each and every Christian who's ever asked the question, I wonder if what I said and what I did means that God will never forgive me or never take me back. And the answer is, yes, God will forgive you. And yes, God will take you back. But you don't understand what I did. Oh, you're right. I don't understand. But God does. He knows about the failure. He knows about the inconsistency. He knows about the hypocrisy. And he's willing. He's saying he's reaching out to you. He's saying, guess what? There's forgiveness for you. There's hope for you. There's blessing for you. Jesus hates sin and Jesus loves sinners. And the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. Including the fear that he'll never take me back. Perfect love is slow to suspect and quick to trust. Perfect love is slow to condemn and quick to justify. Perfect love is slow to offend and quick to defend. Perfect love is slow to expose and quick to shield. Perfect love is slow to reprimand and quick to forbear. Perfect love is slow to belittle and quick to appreciate. Perfect love is slow to provoke and quick to conciliate. Perfect love is slow to hinder and quick to help. Perfect love is slow to resent and quick to forgive. And God's love is perfect. And so in verse 2, that's verse 1. Can you imagine what verse 2 is going to be like? Look at this. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see where have you not lain with men by the road you have sat for them like an Arabian in the wilderness and you polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Here's the picture. He goes to the heights of the heights that are in Judah so that you can look at, at every square inch of, of the land. Have you ever bought a house and you ask, how many square feet is this house? Did you actually investigate when you're buying a house, you want to know what every square inch is like. And what he's saying is the wickedness, the rebellion, the disobedience had affected every single portion of the land. There was no place left unaffected in the desolate heights where the temples and shrines and the altars to the false gods, even common prostitutes <laughs> would at least wait for their customers to come to them. But Judah actively, specifically trolled the highways and byways looking for partners and lovers. Judah pursued false gods, repeatedly commits adultery. The people of Israel and Judah have not abandoned the Lord for just one richer husband or one more handsome husband, but 
over and over repeated adultery. The text seems to indicate that the idea, again, that this repetition has created a mechanism where the wickedness is so thorough, it seems like it can't be undone. And betrayal will do that. And adultery will do that. It will explode a relationship. It will make affection and trust almost impossible. How do you build a bridge where it has been so burnt that you don't know how to get from one place to the next place. Jeremiah likens Judah to a wayside prostitute, constantly soliciting clients. I was born in New Orleans. I was raised in Southern California. I went to college at the University of San Francisco. Do you know what New Orleans and San Francisco Chicago, Atlantic City. Do you know what Reno? Do you know what all of these cities have in common? It's filled with prostitution. Go to New Orleans. Go to Reno. Go to Atlantic City. You walk down any street, a woman will come up to you and say, Hey, mister, do you want a party? It's a euphemism. They will go out of their way. And that's what Jeremiah is using the analogy Of a person who wickedly, actively pursues alienation and rejection of the true and living God. And he uses the analogy and illustration of of an Arabian pirate. Lying in wait for some unsuspecting traveler to plunder the caravan in the ancient world. At that time when you would go across long treks of desert, it wasn't unusual in the Arabian wilderness for people to hold you up and rob you blind. And that's exactly the picture that Jeremiah is painting. In the book of Genesis, we find Tamar by the side of the road and Judah offering his inheritance to be held in trust for sexual favors. Remember, her husband had died and then the two brothers had died and Judah wickedly employed the services of a prostitute who happened to be his own daughter-in-law. And she conceives a child. By the way, does that sound kind of seedy to you? But these are the people in Jesus' genealogy. So you thought you had, well, I come from a very dysfunctional family. Uh, Jesus didn't. Hey, you look back far enough on any family tree and you're going to find some people who are shady characters. In verse 3 it says, Therefore, the showers have been withheld. There's been no latter rain. You've had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. And by the way, in the original language in Hebrew, from verse 1 all the way to verse 5, it's a poem. It's a, it's a type of Hebrew poetry. He's writing a poem to the people. Jeremiah reminds the people that God has gone so far as to alter weather patterns to try and get them to change. Would God do that? Would he actually make hurricanes or tornadoes or the presence of rain or the absence of rain? Would God actually change the weather patterns in order to get people's attention? What do you think the answer is? According to Jeremiah, he does. Here's what the Lord is basically saying. The Lord causes no rain to fall. If there's no latter rain, there's no crop. And if there's no crop, there's no food. You know that. They don't have King Supers. They don't have Albertsons or Safeway. They don't get to go down to the corner store and and fill their grocery cart. If, If it doesn't grow, they don't get to eat. By the way. No rain, no food. Guess what happens when people get really hungry? They start to beg. God, where are you? My brother, 
this guy came up to him and he said, I haven't eaten for three days. And my brother goes, hey, I ate just this morning. No worry. Food still tastes the same. I don't think that that's the answer he was looking for. When you haven't eaten for a very long time, you start to cry and you start to plead. You start to complain. We have no food. How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to feed my family? How am I supposed to stay alive? And there comes a breaking point where people say, God, where are you? God, where are you? Why won't you bring the rain so that we can have a crop, so that we can have food, so that we can live? And the Lord says, I'm trying to get your attention so that you'll turn from your sin and you'll turn to the Savior. And the Lord warned Israel in two ways, one on the outside and one on the inside. So that when you read in the text in verse three, where it says you have a a harlot's forehead, you might think, what does that does that mean? Or like a really high forehead? No, that's not what it means. It means someone who doesn't care what you think about her. She's no shame. Some of you may have remembered John Lennon and Yoko Ono. They released a picture of themselves naked in bed. Like we needed to see that. Tens of millions of people looking at John and Yoko naked in bed. Do we have a fuller, richer life as a result? By the way, do you think that they were embarrassed? Do you think that they were ashamed? That's the point that he's making. That's the harlot's brow. There is no shame. And so part of what he's basically saying is, I've given you an outward sign. No rain. I've given you an inward sign. No sense of shame. It's the Lord's way of saying, what will it take for you to be embarrassed? And ashamed of your circumstances. You refuse to be ashamed. In our culture and society, young men and young women post pictures of themselves naked on the Internet. With no sense of shame. In other words, this becomes one of the types and the pictures of judgment beginning to take place, not only on a human heart, but on a nation. And so in verse four, the Lord says, will you not from this time cry to me, my father, you are the guide of my youth. This is a difficult sentence, and I just need to be clear here. The Hebrew language is very hard in this particular passage because it is either a statement or it's a question. Let me help you just for a moment. The New King James and the RSV put the sentence in the form of a question. Will you not from this time cry to me? My father, you are the guide of my youth. In other words, if it's a question, it's the Lord's way of saying, stop pretending like I'm your God and I'm your guide. Or it could mean Israel speaks the words of a dutiful wife, but has no intention of being a dutiful wife. In other words, Israel could be saying, will you not from this time cry to me, my father, you are the guide of my youth. In other words, you say all the right things. You have the right words. You say the right things. But guess what? We are completely detached from one another. The people... So so one of two things is true about this text. Either Jeremiah is predicting an eventual faithfulness on the part of Judah or it's sarcasm. 
The people of Judah thought that they could have the benefits of a covenant relationship with the Lord without any of the obligations. They wanted to call Jehovah Father and Guide. And by the way, these were titles often used by Jewish women in describing their husbands. They would call them Father or Guide. I know it seems kind of odd in our culture and society, but we have a different expression. Who's your daddy? That's what we say. Who's your daddy? And, but it captures part of the meaning of this particular text. God gave them covenant blessings. But they didn't want to keep the covenant commandments. The people were the very definition of a half-hearted effort. And so they would say in verse 5, Will he remain angry forever? Will he keep it to the end? Behold, you've spoken and done evil things as you were able. Here's what's happening in verse 5. The people are in effect saying, You won't stay angry forever, will you? Sometimes husbands and wives, they play a game. Oh, stop pouting. Oh, come on. Get over it. And so, in, in a very real, real sense, the people were saying, God won't stay angry forever. He'll get over it. it. It would be like we say in our culture and society. Don't be mad. Be glad. The Lord's response. You've taken every opportunity. To say and do evil things. By the way, remember, when Jeremiah is writing, King Josiah has initiated several changes. There have been several reforms that have taken place. There's a, there's a sense when people are turning from idols, they're tearing down the altars, they're starting to do what's right. They begin the outward act of pretending like things are different, but things aren't different in their heart and things aren't different in their mind. Isn't God a merciful God? Yes. You just said that God's mercies were deep and wide. They are. But God is also all-knowing and all-seeing. And God knows if a person's heart matches their lips. God knows if you're sincere on the inside as well as what you say over and over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus condemns hypocrisy over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus commends honesty over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus warns against inconsistency. Why is it that most people want the front of the front seat in the bus? They want the back seat in the church and they want the middle of the road when they're on the highway. Half heartedness consists of serving God in such a way as not to offend the devil. OK, I'll serve God, but I don't want to make the devil angry. Really? Do you think that that's the kind of friendship and relationship that God's looking for? So that you have one foot in the world and the other foot in the kingdom? And so, Jeremiah reminds us. When is the right time to repent of sin? What do you think the answer is? I think now, yeah, repentance isn't like the person who sent the IRS a check for $150 and he wrote this note. Encloses $150. If I can't sleep, I'll send the rest. Oh, really? You want to do just enough to make the guilty conscience go away. Hmm. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter preaching says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. 
In other words, we turn from our sin, but we don't just simply turn to the sin from from our sin. We turn to the Savior for what reason? So that our sins will be blotted out so that the times of refreshing can come and we can enter into the presence of the Lord. We don't we no longer have to sense this estrangement. Someone once said. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Oh, where is that mysterious born by which our path is crossed beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far can one go on in sin? How long will mercy spare? Where does grace end and where begin the confines of despair? An answer from the sky is sent. Ye who from God depart, while it is called today repent. And harden not your heart. Today's a good day. Today's the best day. If ever there was a time not to harden your heart, it's today. What motivates you? What reasons will finally convince you to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior? Is it your children? Is it your grandchildren? You can't lift your children to a higher level than on which you yourself live. You want to hear the good news and the bad news? Bad news? Your children will become just like you. The good news? Your children will become just like you. Yeah, it just depends, huh? At the top of Jeremiah's list, at the top of Jeremiah's list for reasons to repent, is that God is a gracious God who loves you. He loves you. That's at the top of the list. That should impress you. It should astonish you. That's why the New Testament says here in his love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. In first John, it says we love him because he first loved us. We cast our care upon him. We place our lives in his capable hands, our future in his loving care. And sometimes we need to repent because we're guilty. Of polluting the land. Again, the images of both sexual and spiritual immorality. In other words, part of the point that he begins to take is that if you have embarked on a course of action where your heart is defiled, it will defile your family and it will eventually defile your community. And this is one of the reasons why the New Testament so starkly and dramatically warns against sexual impropriety. Sometimes we need to repent because we refuse to learn from God's discipline. Whether the discipline takes the form of deprivation or suffering or loss or hardness of heart, when bad things happen, we sometimes automatically assume that God is punishing us. But that's not necessarily true. But we have to be open. At least consider that the things that are happening in our life Have a rhyme and a reason (laughs) that it's clearly not just for no reason whatsoever. We may need to ask the question. Am I reaping the consequences of some sin that I've sown? Sometimes we need to repent because we're living lives of hypocrisy. And we're only giving lip service to the Lord instead of heart service to the Lord. And the evidence of hypocrisy includes a commitment to live a life of rebellion and disobedience. 
By the way, when Paul confronted Peter over his hypocrisy in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, you'll probably remember it. In Galatians chapter 2, <laughs> Paul says to Peter, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Ralph Kuyper's paraphrase made me laugh. He writes, Peter, I smell ham on your breath. You forgot your certs. For those of you who aren't old enough to remember what certs, there are two, two, two mints in one. Okay. He writes, Peter, I smell ham on your breath. You forgot your certs. There was a time when you wouldn't eat ham as part of your hope of salvation. Then after you trusted Christ, it didn't matter if you ate ham. But now when the no ham eaters have come from Jerusalem, you've got back your kosher ways. But the smell of ham is still lingering on your breath. You're most inconsistent. You're compelling Gentile believers to observe Jewish law, which can never justify anyone. And Peter didn't do this in a private place. He didn't do this in a quiet place. According to the text, he did it in front of everyone. In Acts chapter 8, verse 22, it says, Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek me and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. That God is ready and willing and able to love you and forgive you and redeem you and reconcile you. And cleanse you from your hypocrisy. The beginning of greatness is to be little. And the increase of greatness is to be less. And the perfection of greatness is to be nothing. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. We know that God gives grace to the humble, and when we attempt to avoid the necessary correction and discipline that God brings, we avoid being made humble. I want you to think about that. When you duck your mother or your father or your grandmother's switch, what were you trying to do? Avoid pain. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? But the Bible says, he whom the Lord loves, he chastens everyone, a son and a daughter. When I was at my granny's, only one person got to beat me, and that was my grandma. And that woman was fast. You know, when I was in high school, I could run 100 yards in under 10 seconds. Matter of fact, when I was recruited for the track team, the police officer said to the track coach, Gino Joyce, he can run the 100 in 10-2. And the coach said, that's not very fast. He said, with a TV set in his hand? You won't worry so much about what other people think if you begin to understand how little they actually think about you. Joseph Bailey, in his book, Psalms of My Life, has a psalm entitled, A Psalm of Single-Mindedness. This is how it goes. Lord of reality, make me real, not plastic, synthetic, pretend, 
phony, an actor playing out his part, hypocrite. I don't want to keep a prayer list, but to pray, nor agonize to find your will, but to obey what I already know to argue theories of inspiration, but to submit to your word. I don't want to explain the difference between eros and philos and agape, but to love. I don't want to sing as if I mean it. I want to mean it. I don't want to tell it like it is, but to be it like you want it. I don't want to think another needs me, but I need him else. I'm not complete. I don't want to tell others how to do it, but to do it, to have to be always right, but to admit when I'm wrong. I don't want to be a census taker, but an obstetrician, nor an involved person, a professional, but a friend. I don't want to be insensitive, but to hurt where other people hurt, nor to say, I know how you feel, but to say, God knows. And I'll try if you'll be patient with me. And meanwhile, I'll be quiet. I don't want to scorn the cliches of others, but to mean everything I say, including this. There must come a time when you put off the old and you embrace the new. When you put off the darkness and you put on the light, when you put off the sin and you put on forgiveness. That's exactly what Jeremiah is preaching. How do you suppose people will respond to his message? Thousands of people? Hundreds of people, dozens of people, couple of people, not one person will respond. Not one single person responds to this message. By the way, the message that we've just gone over from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 5. He gives it over and over and over and over again. But God has a plan. Because even as Jeremiah is giving the message and even as Jeremiah has an incredibly difficult ministry in front of him. The words are being written down. And later, Isaiah will read these words and, Jer- and, and Ezekiel will read these words. And you know who else will read these words? Daniel, while he's in captivity, will read the words of Jeremiah and he will begin to understand and receive hope as he begins to understand that God has a plan and a purpose, even in the discipline, the chastisement, the correction that will take place. Idolatry was a huge problem. By the way, when the children of Israel come out of captivity and go back into the land, do you think they'll ever have a problem with idolatry ever again? They're going to be cured. Sometimes things happen in your life where you're cured forever. Where you decide, "Mm, chugging two quarts of vodka, I'm not going to do that anymore. I heard the story of three pastors who were going to a uh, retreat and a deer ran in front of them and they went off the road and they went into a ditch. And there was this guy who was following behind them and he was he was drunk and he was driving, but he pulled over and he said to these guys, you guys OK? And the, one of the pastors says, we're just fine. Jesus is with us. And the guy goes. I think he may should ride with me because you are going to kill him. (laughs) Some people don't really understand who you are and what you're doing. They see you through a different set of lenses. 
But all the while, you need to be able to tell people, no, Jesus loves you. No, he's willing to forgive you. You can experience grace and mercy if you'll let him. We're going to have communion. I'm going to have the guys come up and we're going to um, pray. I just want you to um, just prepare your hearts. And then remember to retain the elements so we all have an opportunity to partake together. Heavenly Father, I pray for each man and each woman who is here. Lord, Jeremiah's message continues to be difficult. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, we we thank you that you're not content to leave us where we are, that you're in the process of changing us. Molding us, shaping us. Lord, we know that for those you did foreknow, you also did predestine to be conformed into the image of your son, Jesus. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're at work in our hearts and our lives. Purging us, shaping us, molding us, removing the things that are dishonoring and displeasing. And you're putting those things inside of us that make for love and mercy, and grace, and peace. Lord, I pray for that person who has wandered far from you. Lord, who have fallen and failed, and they wonder whether or not there is mercy, and love, and forgiveness, and hope. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would impress upon them right at this very moment, that if they would just simply confess their sin, that you're faithful and just to forgive them. That, Lord, it's your desire to put off that sin and to put on righteousness, forgiveness, hope, and love. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that not only are you willing to forgive them, but you're willing to forget it. And you're willing to take them to a place of friendship and fellowship with you. And, Lord, for the person who's in that empty place, that distant place. Lord, for the person who's never experienced what it means to be forgiven, Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would extend the invitation to them, that they could know that because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that they can be forgiven and that they can have new life. And it's as simple as asking and answering the question, do I know I'm a sinner? If the answer is yes, do I want to be forgiven? And if the answer is yes, then what would prevent you from receiving Jesus Christ even now? Clearly, the Bible says if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we'll be saved. And so, Father, we pray that we would turn from our sin and turn to our Savior and receive the hope and the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.